the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to a brand new series of The History Show. On this week's programme, the largest housing estate in Ireland for World War I ex-servicemen, Colester Garden Village. That's a common picture with the veterans here in Colester. Many of them suffered either with their mental health or physical health. And you know, they're quite forgotten about. They just carried on with their lives in these houses in this community. How a community in North Dublin is remembering its history. Also, ahead of the Rugby World Cup, we investigate the origin myth of the sport. Webb Ellis apparently decided to uh, run with the ball, uh, Forrest Gump style, down the pitch, and that apparently was the beginning of, of rugby. How rugby's most prestigious trophy came to be named after one William Webb Ellis. And to begin this evening, 100 years on, a look back at how the newly independent Irish Free State joined the League of Nations. The centrepiece of the National Archives 2023 commemoration programme is an international exhibition to mark the centenary of Ireland joining the League of Nations. Drawing from records held in the National Archives, the exhibition will explore the early ambitions of the new Irish state as it asserted its independence on the global stage. The exhibition will introduce the Irish delegation who travelled to Geneva in 1923 to secure Ireland's membership and it will explore Ireland's role at the League of Nations during the 1920s and 1930s. Working in partnership with the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Royal Irish Academy, the exhibition will begin its tour this month. To learn more about the Irish Free State's role in the League of Nations, I'm joined by two of the exhibition's curators, Dr Michael Kennedy, Executive Editor of the Documents on Irish Foreign Policy with the Royal Irish Academy, and Zoe Reid, Keeper of Public Services and Collections with the National Archives. You're both very, very welcome indeed. Michael, remind us, first of all, what was the League of Nations? How did it come about? The League of Nations was a great experiment in international organisation that came about as a result of the destruction of the First World War. It was one of uh, President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points that the post-war order would be, in the international terms, organised by a League of Nations that would bring together all of the uh, the countries of the world, the, the free countries of the world, to Geneva, where the League was to be based, and they would try and organise the international system. And the, the big hope for the League of Nations was that it would be part of the ending of war as an international instrument. The League would promote the peaceful settlement of international disputes. It would particularly promote disarmament and it would promote uh, social activities amongst nations. That's not, I don't mean parties or that sort of thing. I mean social events and uh, social understanding, social intercourse, if you like, in areas that uh, hitherto hadn't been part of an organised international system, like the International Labour Organisation, uh, the organisation of such mundane sounding things as road signs and that you know, across uh, international borders. But the main thing the League was to do was to try and prevent war breaking out again, that there would never be a First World War type scenario. And we know this was all in vain. But in the, the 1920s, the hope was that the League would use its moral clout, the clout of the international order, to prevent wars breaking out. And if wars did break out, then members, uh, those members who transgressed the covenant of the League would have sanctions implemented upon them, either economic sanctions or, in very limited cases, military sanctions. Got off to a bad start. As you say, it was the brainchild of Woodrow Wilson. He was out of office, I suppose, when, the, uh, when, it, when it came to the crunch. And the crunch was the US Senate essentially voting down the Versailles Treaty. Yeah, That's the, the end of it, as far the, as they're concerned. As far as America's concerned, yeah. there, in its isolationism... Uh, 
America does not get involved in the you know the old world uh, in the in the 1920s as the Americans see it. And so the the league is basically an Anglo-French construction, and it's basically a European Latin American construction with a little bit of involvement of the few states of Africa and uh, you know Southeast Asia who are independent. Japan is a member, China uh, is a member, the Soviet Union becomes a member in 1934. But it's not like the UN today that is universal because at the time there were so many states were still colonised, were still part of the imperial system of the powers of the, the First World War era. The League played its part in that as uh, it had a system of mandates that would try and bring some of the uh, the colonies, uh, particularly uh, German, ex-German colonies, ex-Turkish colonies, bring them forward to statehood. But primarily, uh, the League we're looking at uh, today is a, uh, a League that runs around an Anglo-French axis and is based in Geneva. And obviously, Ireland had not had access to the Versailles negotiations in 1919 and the formulation of the of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, this, therefore, was something that would have been very attractive to the, to the free state government, although their right to participate was, at the very least, a grey area. That's true. That the, one of the primary aims of the, the Doyle Aaron and the, the Declaration of Independence, the message to the free nations of the world of January 1919, was that Ireland would become a member of the League of Nations. Now, initially, there was some kind of d- distaste about that or uncertainty as to whether Ireland should become a member. Was it a League of Imperialist States? And, you know, the, the particularly after America rejected the League, there were issues there with uh, support from Irish America or not. But primarily for the, the free state, as it comes into being in 1922, League of Nations membership is a primary goal of Irish foreign policy. Ireland wants to be represented at Geneva. It's a question of how do you do this? Because the provisional government that uh, took office through 1922 didn't have any international capacity. It was just looking after domestic policy. The Doyle Aaron government set up in 1919 wasn't recognised internationally. So it was only when the Irish Free State came into being in December 1922 that Ireland could finally make the move towards joining the League. And then there were other issues from the League side that that, uh, that were problematic, uh, particularly that the Civil War was ongoing. The Free State had a, a large standing army at that stage, and this was seen to potentially transgress the League's covenant in that it uh, wasn't, uh, it didn't find favour with Article 8 of the covenant, which dealt with disarmament. So it looked like Ireland, for, for probably the only time in its history, was too militarised. So there were, there were issues like that to overcome the, 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 the state actually being in being, the size of the defence forces. There were also issues over whether the Oireachtas should or could become involved in promoting membership. But uh, finally, on the, the 4th of April, 1923, Ireland applied for membership of the, the League of Nations. Zoe, the, the Free State joins the League on the 10th of September, 1923. Obviously, it's a pivotal moment. The exhibition explores the individuals who made that happen, from politicians like W.T. Cosgrave, who was the president of the Executive Council, or, or Taoiseach, we'd now call him, to diplomats like Michael McWhite. Just Talk to me a little bit about the involvement of those two individuals in this process. Well, I think Michael McWhite as the first envoy is hugely important in this whole process. And he was the gentleman who was really quick off the mark to see the value of it. As Michael's research has shown, I mean, uh, McWhite was multilingual. He had been part of the French Foreign Legion and he was a gentleman who was pushing constantly to make sure that the Anglo-Irish Treaty 
became an international treaty. And that was really important. And I think the important thing to remember about bringing an exhibition like this to life is that we're taking the documents and the documents that tell us something and we're turning something concrete into something that people can connect with and and can see. So things like seeing the letter from McWhite that says, I have lodged the Anglo-Irish Treaty into the the international treaty framework to get it ratified. And that was as early as August and then it was sanctioned in the September. And was there no pushback from GB at all at this stage, no? I'll let Michael answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Because there was. (laughs) There certainly is. I mean, the British are kind of caught on this and that Ireland becomes a a dominion under the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Dominions have international sovereignty, but how much sovereignty they have is is questionable. The Foreign Office say, well, none at all. Anything that the Dominions do internationally is done as part of the Commonwealth, whereas the Colonial Office, which becomes the Dominions Office, say, well, actually, no, the Dominions do have an international uh, international sovereignty and international profile in, in their own right. So there's pushback in London, but th- there's uncertainty in London. And, and that's, I think, something that League of Nations membership is very useful for, for the Free State, in that it allows it to project an international image to show, like Zoe said about the, registering the treaty at the, at the League of Nations to prove that Dominion status can be the way to get international sovereignty. It's Collins' stepping stone argument. And the, the, um, the British really don't have a leg to stand on because the, once the League Secretariat accept one that Ireland is able to be a member of the League, there's never any problem about that. And then uh, shortly afterwards that the, the treaty can be registered as an international document because the League wants itself to succeed. You know, the League is only a new organisation really in 1924. So there's very little that Britain can do it can bluster it can protest it can try and develop you know counter precedents to what the Irish do at Geneva and McQuaite who we were talking about there is a is a brilliant operator from that point of view he's a he's very skilled as a diplomat you know he's he has no diplomatic training he's just innately capable of working the international system of working the working the room in Geneva basically and getting Ireland's message across so Britain is kind of caught on the hop if you like unable to respond to the very able diplomacy and the very able propaganda that McWhite and his colleagues uh, undertake in Geneva to promote the free state as an independent state and Zoe despite any British ambiguity the welcome from the other members of the you know of the League of Nations seems to have been quite fulsome it was I mean there's some great quotes from the exhibition as well there's one from Desmond Fitzgerald, um, where he's basically talking about greeting all the different nations of the world. He was um, the Minister for External Affairs, as it was called. He then. was at that stage. And so he was part of the diplomatic corps that went over, that the Executive Council sent over to Geneva. And he talks about, you know, shaking hands with people like their long lost brothers and then finding out who they are. And um, so you get that great sense of the people as Michael said, working the room, working really hard to do what we see Ireland very successfully does today on an international platform. And the League is that first opportunity for Irish people to really show the role that they can have on an international stage. And I think that's why it's critical and it's important. And it's really important for us to actually look back and reflect on this now to see where we are now in terms of the UN and our international state. Um, Michael, for the first few years, it was a case of, it seems to have been a case of, we're in, now let's take 40 winks. That's a bit bit extreme, but yeah, you're, you're right, basically, that, that there's that the whole build-up to becoming a member of the League, what Zoe was describing there, and then the, the Fourth Assembly, Ireland is admitted, there's a massive applause, and then afterwards, well, what do we do now? And the some sense of, well, can we bring the Boundary Commission to the League of Nations? There's the registration of the treaty that we, we talked about. But... You know, we've, 
use the League to make the point that we're independent. Okay, now we're in. Well, what happens next? So there, there is a bit of a fallow period until 1926, and Fitzgerald, as, as Minister for External Affairs, has, has a lot on his plate. You know, the, the Ireland's diplomatic service is really only established in, in 1922, so it's a very small, young department that Fitzgerald is heading, and the League is one of a number of areas that the Department of External Affairs have to go at full speed on from the word go. And in 1926, this sense, well, where now? And it's a chance event that leads to a total reboot of League policy. Uh, Germany is admitted to the League at a special assembly in, in the spring of 1926. And as a result of that, there's a, an upset over membership of the League's council. It's equivalent to the Security Council. And it's going to be expanded to allow Germany to get in. Other states are going to get in. They're going to have to be elected. And the League basically, with the great powers of the time, sets up an election to make sure that certain states get in and certain states don't. Fitzgerald is heading the Irish delegation to the the League and the Irish delegation say, well, hang on, this isn't right. Uh, The Assembly is meant to have a say in this. The powers just can't fix an election why don't we stand for election? Let's upset the apple cart and we'll we'll go for election ourselves. So that, that's what happens in September 1926. Ireland puts its name forward for a temporary seat on the League Council. Now, we don't get elected, but we make a fuss. We make a bit of a hullabaloo and we get listened to. We get votes from the other small states in the Assembly. And the delegation, when it comes back to Dublin, says, well, hang on, maybe we ought to put a bit more effort into policy. And really central in this is not Fitzgerald, the Minister for External Affairs, but Ernest Blythe, the Minister for Finance. That I find incredibly surprising. It is really fascinating. (laughs) And, you know, uh, Fitzgerald goes back and he he writes to his wife, Mabel, at least Ernest will see now this is not a holiday for me, this trip to Geneva. And Fitzgerald (laughs) hated the League Assembly because, like Zoe's comment there about shaking hands with people like their long lost friends, but not knowing who the hell they are. You know, he he hated the dining at Geneva. Uh, He had a, a, a delicate composition. And he didn't particularly like all the big dinners he had to go to. Now, he, this is Garrett Fitzgerald's father Garrett's you're talking father, about, by Garrett's the way, in case father, anybody's yeah. not sure. Yeah, now he's, yeah. he's a wonderful minister to the extent that he's really tuned into the international environment of the 20s, particularly in Europe. Former journalist, lots of connections in the literary world and that. So he's the kind of man you want as minister. But he's, he's eased out of the external affairs portfolio into defence in 1927. And foreign affairs or external affairs... Kevin O'Higgins is there, summer of 1927, he's assassinated. Then in the autumn of 1927, Patrick McGilligan takes over as minister. And it's McGilligan and Blythe who really get league policy going in the late 20s. And the, the move at this stage is that Ireland has moved from seeing the league in terms of what can the league do for Ireland, sovereignty, international acceptance and so on, to what Ireland can do for the league. And Ireland can be a small state supporter of the League in its assembly, trying to keep the great powers in order. And that becomes Ireland's modus operandi in the League for the remainder of of its membership. And there must have been a lot of good work done between 1926 and 1930 because the Free State is voted onto the League's Council in 1930. Yep. Ireland takes a very active role in the Assembly. It signs League conventions. It gets involved in the work of the League. And McWhite is is still permanent representative at Geneva, permanent delegate to the League at Geneva. And he is still showing that Ireland has an interest in the League. And the Department of External Affairs is very small in 1929-1930 when the state goes up for election. And its offices in Berlin, in Paris, the Vatican, London 
put on a, a canvas, uh, you know, canvas the states who are members of the league, the 60 or so states, looking for votes for Ireland. And then it's, it's kind of touch and go in September 1930. Portugal puts its name in at the last minute. Ireland isn't sure if it's going to be elected. But finally, September 1930, the vote is taken in the Assembly and Ireland secures a three-year temporary seat on the league's top table on its council, dealing with the main international events of the of, of that period. And if you think the early 1930s, it's a hugely important time with the you know the aftermath of the Wall Street crash, the rise of, of uh, Nazism in Germany, Japan invades the Chinese province of Manchuria in the Far East. There's uh, wars in Latin America. You know the, the the league. It's really a turning point in international history and a turning point in the league where the activism and the hopes of the 1920s begin to give way to the the despair and ultimately the slide to war of the 1930s. I suppose those years, 30 to 35, Ireland is at the height of its influence in the League of Nations. And that brings one Eamon de Valera to international prominence. De Valera is very lucky with the League of Nations that uh, he comes to power in 1932. Uh, he takes the external affairs portfolio as well as being president of the Executive Council and he wants Irish foreign policy to succeed. F- foreign policy is the ultimate form of sovereignty to him that if you have an independent foreign policy, you are an independent state. And so he goes to Geneva in September 1932 not only as... Irish delegate to the League, to the head of the delegation to the Assembly, but also president of the Council of the League. He holds the rotating presidency. He's responsible for opening the 1932 Assembly as well. So he really is catapulted onto the international stage at Geneva. And because of the the tension in Anglo-Irish relations at the time, there's this sort of sense, this international frisson of what is de Valera going to do? Uh, Is he going to announce some major initiative in Anglo-Irish affairs? Is he going to bash the Brits from the Rostrum at Geneva, but he doesn't do any of that. He's the statesman. He calls the League to order. He makes a speech that goes down in the history of the League as kind of um, telling the League, you're about to be on your last chance, lads, because if you don't shape up, the world is going to pass you by. And look at the way the international system is changing. And he's constantly calling out the League through the 1930s, using the power that he has at Geneva to tell the great powers Uh, The League is failing. The League is beginning to fail. The League needs to kind of catch itself on to realise that the covenant is being bypassed by states like uh, like Japan, uh, Germany, uh, Italy, who simply want to run roughshod over the international order that is being established at Geneva. So he's quite a well-known figure at Geneva, he's a, it's a very different De Valera to what we see in Ireland. He's a, he's a cosmopolitan figure. He's you know sitting at uh, you know sidewalk cafes in Geneva, sipping coffee. It's not the the austere, uh, tall, austere gentleman and close Make him sound by like nuns. James Joyce almost. But there's a, there's an element of that to it that we don't take into the domestic view of De Valera. De Valera, the statesman, mm. is very different internationally to yeah. De Valera, the the um, the Irish politician on the stump. Uh, Zoe, another Irish name associated with the League of Nations is Sean Lester. Tell me about him. Who was he? Sean Lester was a gentleman from Carrickfergus in County Antrim and he was a journalist by trade, but he then became a very important figure in terms of both the League on a couple of different occasions. So he was there. He took over as being the permanent rep after Michael McWhite in 29. He got the High Commissioner posting to Danzig in 1935 and went with his family to Danzig, which we now know as contemporary Gdansk in Poland. He was there until 1937. 
that's when he saw things very much change in Poland in terms of the rise of Nazism. He then comes back to the League for a period of time and then he ends up being the Secretary General of the League towards the end of the League's life as well. So he's hugely important in terms of Ireland and its role with the League of Nations. And I think that, again, there's some great quotes from himself writing back to his wife Elsie about um, the role and about the fact of the diplomatic spouses. He was a gentleman, as I've said, he was there with his wife, but they had three daughters as well. They didn't have a high salary, and that's one thing that has come out, the diplomatic spouses and the role that they played. They had to dress well, they had to entertain, and they had to do it all on quite a small budget. And you say as well, Michael, that in some of Lester's diaries, you know, he's there with barbed comments about the lack of money and the lack of funding to entertain diplomats, which is not what we think about when we think about people going abroad and representing Ireland and that League thing. And again, I think what we've managed to do with some of the documents in the exhibition is to bring those the human element out and the bits to life. So there's a great example we have of the delegation going over for 1931 and we have a plan of the hotel and it's their their request for the rooms that they're going to have and we have a small map of the of the hotel, the first floor, and all the different rooms are marked out to say which diplom- who's staying where. And it's again, <laughs> those are the things that make it tangible. You know, we can say, yes, we sent over a diplomatic corps and they went and represented us. When you see they had to plan it, the same way we have to plan our holidays, they had to think about hotel rooms. That's what gets you really engaged with the documents. And who's going to get the plushest room, obviously. <laughs> they're sharing the bathroom. Yeah, they're sharing bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. you know, this, is, right. this is done on a shoestring budget mm. as well. You know, it's not, it's back to the, the Desmond Fitzgerald quote of this isn't a holiday for me. You know, this is a, this is a real working trip. And uh, it's, uh, you're seeing, you know, uh, Mr. Lester is in this room and he's sharing a bathroom with Dr. Binchy and then De Valera gets the suite, you know, because he needs to have a, a salon to it to have meetings in and entertain. What did Sean McEntee think of that? I don't think he'd be very happy at all with that. <laughs> no, more than Blythe, money, no more yeah. than Blythe was, uh, <laughs> w- w- was happy in the 20s. Um, talk to me then, uh, Michael, about the decline of the League of Nations. I assume that really is accelerated with the Italian invasion of Abyssinia as it was then, Ethiopia as it is now. Yeah, 1934-35 sees that really the, the, the League, well not getting its last rights, but its, uh, its attempt to impose economic sanctions on Italy uh, does nothing to thwart uh, Italy's annexation uh, of, of Abyssinia, Ethiopia. And the, the move away from Geneva was very clear from the, the early 1930s. It's, uh, it's global disarmament conference fails and Nazi Germany leaves the League. Uh, Japan leaves the League over uh, the, you know, the, the League's response to its invasion of Manchuria. And the sanctions articles in the Covenant, which weren't meant to be the League's teeth, just really they fall out, you know, that they're seen to be um, utterly um, incapable of, of proper proper working, really. The League does not work uh, from the mid-1930s on. And what Zoe was saying there about Leicester in, in uh, Danzig is, is so important that he's the, the man who, if Europe had listened, uh, gave one of the first warnings about the Nazis and, and Nazi race, racial policies and what the thuggery of Nazism was, was all about. Um, but Geneva begins to be bypassed. The great powers, particularly after the annexation of Abyssinia, are returning to rearming. There's war is on the horizon. The League has very little to do with you know the the, the awful events that lead to uh, the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939 in September 1939. It's not involved in, in the Munich crisis, for example. Dev is president of the Assembly at that stage. He's pretty much on the sidelines. But where the League does, and this is something that historians have kind of rediscovered in in the last twenty years or so. 
where the League does really have successes is in its social activities, back to the looking after the, the people of the planet, the, the welfare of women and children, trying to stop the, the white slave trade, you know, prostitution, uh, international issues that we, we deal with today, refugees, terrorism, uh, international health. All of those areas that we take for granted as part of the UN system have their origins in the League of Nations and in late Victorian attempts at, at organising the world that the League takes on board. And these, these are the, the League's successes from the late 1930s and into the Second World War. And it's those areas that Leicester safeguards, as is always describing a Secretary General of the League, uh, through the Second World War. But as a political organisation, it has completely failed uh, by the time Leicester returns from uh, Danzig and becomes Deputy Secretary General of the League in, in 1937. Zoe, you and Michael and your co-curator, Dr John Gibney, are going to be very busy for the next few months. Give us uh, a couple of dates and locations, perhaps, for the exhibition. I think you're starting, you're making your debut at the Ploughing Championship. We are. We're taking it to the Ploughing Championships, um, which is fantastic. So you'll be able to see the exhibition there. And then it'll be opening in the United Nations office in Geneva. Uh, for two weeks, mid to the end of September. And then we'll be taking part in the Dublin Festival of History this year. And then it'll go back to United Nations, but in New York, in the headquarters in the UN in New York in November to early December. So it's having quite a life and quite a tour. Very definitely. And uh, getting around, that's for sure. Michael Kennedy and Zoe Reid, thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about Ireland and the League of Nations as explored in a forthcoming exhibition that, as I said, begins its international tour at the Ploughing Championships on the 19th of this month. After the break, we'll be looking at the history of Kilester Garden Village, the largest housing estate for World War I ex-servicemen on this island. Stay with us. Welcome back. On the 12th of November 1918, the day after the armistice that brought an end to World War I, British Prime Minister David Lloyd George gave a speech promising habitations fit for the heroes who have won the war. In 1919, a house-building scheme began to provide homes for British Army veterans, which included the many thousands of Irishmen who signed up. Planners promoted the construction of new suburban garden estates situated on the outskirts of cities. The largest such housing development built on the island of Ireland was Kilester Garden Village in North Dublin, comprising of 247 bungalows. By the time it was completed in 1923, the Irish Free State, of course, was a newly independent country. To mark this centenary, a group of residents in Kilester, many of them direct descendants of the people originally housed there, held a community street party last weekend. A new book was also launched, profiling the veterans that first came to live in each house. Our producer, Lorcan Clancy, went along and found out more. So this is Kilester, a little village of Kilester on the north side of Dublin. And it is amazing to think that an event which happened thousands of miles away with the assassination of an Austrian prince trickled its way to this little piece of grass here in the north side of Dublin city. We would not be here today if Archduke Ferdinand wasn't assassinated and the tragedy of the First World War pursued. That's Tom Burke, founding member of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Association. He grew up here in Colester. So the people who came back here were men who, who were British Army ex-servicemen, First World War, who fell on hard times and needed somewhere to live. Now the British, I suppose, from their perspective... It was a kind of a way of, I suppose, reconciling their past in sense of giving something back to the Irish people who 
had serviced them in the First World War. Uh, so the vast majority of the people around here today wouldn't have had a clue, literally, about the history of the First World War, but they do remember their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and the great-granduncles who lived in these houses. And so that story can now be linked into the, the, the story of the First World War, can be linked into their memories. Literally, the stones that made up the houses of Calestres uh, and the woodwork that made up the rafters, their stories were told in very hushed tones when these were younger men. And now their stories have been taken out of those shoe boxes and biscuit tins and put in the front window and these stories are now in the front room no longer hidden away with that little medal or that photograph in a shoe box in a biscuit tin hidden away in the house and the community came out in all its glory and said yeah welcome home lads you're part of us I've seen reference in the early days to this being called the Calester Colony and some people don't like that term because it has a sort of an angle of imperialism and so forth. But it is a term that was used by the men that lived here at the time. That's Nigel Henderson, co-author, along with Michael Nugent, of the book Calester Garden Village, The Lives of Great War Veterans and Their Families, which catalogues the stories of the men who moved here a century ago. So there's some men who served in Gallipoli, Salonica, and the Western Front. There were others that served in the Western Front and then served in the Middle East. And there was just a, a, a massive range of different areas of service. There were mainly soldiers, but there were some sailors and some airmen that we came across. In the 1930s, more houses were added to the original 247, bringing the total to 289 dwellings. The people that lived here formed a very, very close community and a community spirit um, developed. And you get the, the Legion Hall, the Legion Hut being built, which was used not just for meetings of the, the local branch of the British Legion, but also for social occasions, children's parties. Later on in the 1950s, you, there's photographs of people celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, and the party was held in the Legion Hall. It's now quite dilapidated, and it's not used anymore, and it's a bit of a sad sight. And personally, I would love to see it being renovated and becoming back to what it was before and that is a resource for the local community. My name is Imelda Doyle. I'm 91 and I was born and reared here in Colester. My father was James Martin and he was in the Royal Artillery. Badly wounded, spent all his life, had a wound which never healed and every so often he had to go into Leopardstown Hospital, Park Hospital, which was military and get himself fixed up again for another while. But uh, he was 96 when he died. He formed committees here to fight for the right for the women to be allowed to stay in the houses when the men died. And they won their case, and then they fought for the right to buy the houses. And they won that as well. And he was secretary of the British Legion, so they did a lot of good work for the people of the village. It was, it was a great social place, you know. I mean, every Monday night they had um, a dance in the Legion Hall. But it was, it was all innocent, it was lovely, you know. It was lovely growing up here. And we had so much freedom because we were surrounded by farmlands and fields. So we were out from early morning to late evening playing, 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 you know. And everyone got on. It was mixed. You know, you had Protestants and Catholics, but it never made any difference. Everybody played together. You know, so it was lovely, lovely place, and I'm delighted to see it coming back to life. 
And let me say, the men and women, are the men and women who made Colester. And as you know, they were mentally and physically damaged. Some of them never worked again or anything. And it was the women who kept them together and kept the families together and everything, you know. Nobody had much, but they got on with what they had. And um, nobody went hungry. We kept our good clothes for Sunday. <laughs> this year is also the centenary of the Colester Railway Station, now Colester Dart Station, opened in 1923 to connect this garden village to the city centre. The infrastructure and large green spaces made Colester an attractive place to live. Michael Nugent's my name. Uh, I've been involved in Great War research probably for just over 10 years now. I research individual servicemen for relatives and I've also written three books about the Great War. Whenever the houses were set up, and it's the same across all of Ireland, they were all given a large back garden. And those back gardens were used uh, to cultivate vegetables. Some people kept chickens and other animals. But uh, we came across, when we were carrying out the, the research, newspaper reports of flower shows, vegetable shows, where the residents here invariably took the top prizes. And there were obviously very keen societies within the community here. Many of the men had very visible disabilities, like amputated limbs because of the injuries they sustained during the war. Then, of course, there was the mental trauma endured by soldiers on the battlefield, which they carried with them for many years afterwards. And we came across a number of cases where where people committed suicide, probably because of the effects of the war, and not just in the years, the 1920s, we're talking about in the 1930s. And, and, you know, people who were gassed as well, the breathing difficulties, probably living out in the countryside in the outskirts of, of Dublin may have may have helped them in that way, but that's still in their, their death register entries. Yeah, chronic bronchitis, pneumonia, these are, and emphysema, these are illnesses which crop up time and a time again in the death register entries for men who lived in Calaster. And it's nearly always connected to either being gassed, but also the conditions in which men served, especially on the Western Front, where quite often they were um, standing in, you know, two, three foot of water in the bottom of the trenches. Uh, Michael mentioned um, disabilities and the, the garden schemes. There was one man who was a frequently listed in as a winner, and he had had both his legs amputated as a result of the war, but he still did his gardening from his wheelchair, which to me speaks of as somebody who wasn't prepared to just sit back and take whatever life wanted to throw at him he may not have been able to to have worked but he was still able to get around he was still able to do things which interested him and which probably helped his mental health because there would be nothing worse than i think than for somebody who had served in the war to then be stuck in a house all day long this day shows you the, the huge community spirit here today and that we're still a garden village I seen on one of the original plans it was called like even a garden city. It was a bit of a stretch, but it's definitely a garden village and it has that feel and vibe here today. That's Aaron Crampton, chairman of the Colester Garden Village Committee. 
So this is the centenary of the completion of the Cholester Garden Village. So the original 247 houses, they were built from kind of roughly 1921 to 1923, and that was Abbeyfield, Middle Third and the Domain. But the development of the estate continued on then right up to the 1930s. My great-grandfather lived in 90 Abbeyfield from about roughly 1928. He was Sergeant John Brophy. He was served both in the First World War and then when he settled here after the First World War for a few years, then uh, he then went back and joined up in the Second World War, uh, like a few other Cholester men themselves. So he served in uh, France in the First World War and France again in the Second World War. The war did affect him in many ways. I found records that he applied for help with uh, some charities when he got back from the First World War and, and AA and so on. You know, so, and that's a common picture with the veterans here in Cholester. Many of them suffered either with their mental health or physical health. And, you know, they're quite forgotten about. They just carried on with their lives in these houses and this community. It was quite unknown, you know, to people outside Cholester and in the, you know, general kind of history and Dublin history even. And there was nothing there to recognise it or honour it. So, you know... That's why I suppose today is the culmination of that and both the estate and the ex-servicemen and families that lived here are rightfully recognised and and honoured today. Lorcan Clancy was reporting there from Calester in North Dublin. That book once again is called Calester Garden Village, The Lives of Great War Veterans and Their Families. The authors are Nigel Henderson and Michael Nugent, and it's published by the Liffey Press. And our thanks to Rita O'Reilly of the Calester Centenary Committee for her assistance with that report. After the break, who invented the sport of rugby? Ahead of the Rugby World Cup starting this Friday, we look back at the origin myth of the sport. Stay with us. It's Rugby World Cup time again, so let's take a moment to dream. Picture this. It's about 11pm on Saturday, the 28th of October, 2023. We're in Paris, Stade de France to be precise, and we've just witnessed one of the greatest Rugby World Cup finals ever. Ireland have not only shattered their quarter-final hoodoo, but they've gone on to win it all in front of a raucous crowd. Johnny Sexton lifts aloft the trophy, the Webb Ellis Cup, named in honour of one William Webb Ellis. OK, now back to reality. Who was William Webb Ellis? What role did he play in the history of rugby union? And why is the sport's most important trophy named in the man's honour? To discuss this murky topic, I'm joined by Ian Kennelly, historian and researcher for The History Show. Ian, first of all, give us some background on William Webb Ellis, some information about him. Okay, he was born in 1806 in Salford, uh, England. His father was an officer in the British Army. He was killed in action when when William Webb Ellis was only about six years old, killed in uh, the Peninsular War fighting in Spain. So that left his wife, uh, Anne, with two boys and a military pension. So they were they were not poor as such, but they weren't particularly wealthy. So she moved uh, the family to uh, the town of Rugby and she somehow managed to get them enrolled in rugby school. Now, it's in rugby school, which would have been a pretty posh public school at the time. Public school is what they call them in, in, in the UK. <laughs> Private school is what we call them here. Um, so I'm going to read for you the inscription of a plaque that was erected in his name at the school. And it reads as follows. This stone commemorates the exploit of William Webb Ellis, who with a fine disregard for the rules of football as played in his time, first took the ball in his arms and ran with it, thus originating the 
distinctive feature of the rugby game, AD 1823. Yes, it's uh, fair to say it's not actually quite as clear-cut as rugby school would have us believe. Exactly. Now, according to the, the sports folklore, what's since become folklore, he defied the conventions of the day. Uh, playing a match in, in rugby in 1823, he caught the ball and ran with it. And supposedly that was, you know, in the context of the time, rugby had no formal rule book. It wasn't until the 1845 or so that there was the, the first attempt at a formal rule book. And the game consisted of an indeterminate number of players, but you had maybe 50 or 60 on each side. And you could call it scrums, but effectively it was just two huge melees facing each other, kicking the ball forward, or mostly kicking each other. They called it hacking. Uh, and eventually, by chance, the ball would go into the air. Uh, and if you caught it on the full, you could bring a momentary halt to the madness by, by calling Mark. And what that would do is the opposing team would, would advance to the line of where you call the Mark and whoever called the Mark would step backwards and they'd have an opportunity to consider what to do next. And that was seems to be invariably they'd taken an uncontested kick, they'd bash it down the field and it would all start again. But William Webb, Webb Ellis apparently decided to uh, run with the ball, uh, Forrest Gump style, down the pitch and that apparently was the beginning of, of rugby. Yeah, you use the word apparently, you underline yeah. the word apparently, and we will come back to that. So it's essentially the same as uh, a mark in rugby as it is today in Australian rules football, fair catches in American American football or whatever. But the you stop, you, mm. you, you know, the game stops, everything stops, except in his case, it didn't. Or... Or did it? Where does this story actually originate? Yeah, for years afterwards, there, you know, there, this story didn't exist. And it, it, it first uh, emerges in 1876, a guy called uh, Matthew Bloxham, a former student of, uh, of rugby school and a, an antiquarian of sorts. And he wrote a letter to the school magazine uh, that year to say that he had heard that William Webb Ellis had uh, again defied the conventions of the day by catching the ball and running with it and therefore originating the sport of rugby. And he said that that happened in 1824. Now, one of the, the catches with that was that uh, William Webb Ellis had actually left uh, rugby school in 1823 and gone on to Oxford University. And just a brief sideline on, on, on the rest of his career. As far as we know, he had no connection, uh, Webb Ellis, that is, to rugby after he left rugby school. Cricket was his sport. Uh, he eventually became a Church of England men- minister, a uh, fairly well-known preacher and author, and, and, and he died in France in 1872. But uh, Bloxham made this claim in 1876, came back in 1880 and had modified the story slightly so it would fit with William Ellis's dates in the school, saying that this happened in uh, 1823. But Nobody cared at the time. It just, it gained no traction whatsoever. Uh, important to relate, though, that this story did not originate from William Webb Ellis himself. Was he even aware? I mean, the, uh, Bloxham comes out with the story in 1876. William Webb Ellis has been dead for four years yeah, at that stage. There is no historical record, there's no statement, there's no hearsay even that William Webb Ellis knew about this or that he made any claims during his life to have uh, have the, such an august role in rugby's history. And also when it came to that original overture from Bloxham, it was on the basis that he had heard. So it's mm. Dorchban Lum, Gunorchban Lay. That's it. That's all it is. There's nothing, nothing to back it up whatsoever. Uh, the story, though, proves obviously very useful to rugby school and the sports authorities sometime around the 1890s. 
Yeah, like at that stage, rugby has become very popular, but it, as it's become popular, it's, there's a lot of turmoil. There's divisions within the game. I think class ones are probably the most important, but there's geographical, there's issues over the div- payment of players and so on. And there's a big split in 1895 and a new organisation, which will eventually become known as Rugby League, is founded. So the authorities in, in rugby union, so to speak, are, are there's this debate over who's the... Who, who has control of the game and uh, rugby school uh, commissions the old rugby and society to investigate this issue now you can imagine if they're investigating it the, the outcome is predetermined pretty much uh, and they uh, they can find nothing about they're aware of Bloxham's article and they dig that up they can find nothing about Web, Web Ellis apart from one student who remembered a guy called Harris who uh, was in uh, rugby at the same time as Web Ellis and he said that uh, he apparently didn't like Web Ellis he called him a cheat which kind of fits with the original uh, breaking of the rules but he, he gave the impression that he cheated in his exams as well And but he said that when he left the school and this is Harris now in 1828 well after Webb Ellis had left if anybody ran with the ball they would have been hacked severely and that in fact it was strictly forbidden uh, and they also then uh, interviewed uh, Thomas Hughes author of Tom Brown's School Days who'd also been of course like his novel is set there and he said that in the 1830s again, following on from Harris, that if anybody tried to run with the ball in hand, they would have been, you know, a sound trashing would have been the least that they'd have emerged with. Uh, but he did mention a guy called Jem Hackey, or Jem Mackey, sorry. Uh, Hackey, <laughs> sorry, that's an interesting yeah. Freudian <laughs> yeah. slip. Too much, uh, too much rugby reading. But he, um, <laughs> he, he got this guy, Jem Mackey, that he ran with the ball. He was known for running with the ball despite the risks that it entailed. But he never made it into rugby folklore because he was expelled from rugby school for some unknown incident. So obviously they decided he mightn't be a suitable role model. So they, they lighted upon... William Webb Ellis and in 1897 they released a report saying William Webb Ellis founded rugby and it went from it wasn't even folklore it went from this letter of Bloxham this hearsay in 1876 to now being established fact and remains so to this day. So it's basically an origin myth. It's a work mm. of propaganda really by, by rugby school and Johnny Sexton actually should be holding the Jem Mackey trophy he aloft. Be, yeah. yeah. Let's hope let's hope he hope he will be holding some trophy. But yeah, it's um you know, it because it's got the backing of rugby school. It has that status. And even in 1923, for example, there's a rugby hosts, a special representative match between English Welsh selection and an Irish Scottish selection to commemorate the centenary of this event. So now you can see how all of a sudden it's become part of of the game's history. Yeah, I suppose we're, in a sense, commemorating the bicentenary of this event by still naming Mm. the trophy the William Webb Ellis Trophy. And perhaps there's another reason why it shouldn't be called the William Webb Ellis Trophy. And uh, that's because... New Zealand has won it three times. Yeah, well, the, the people did say, you know, there was some voices in the game that said in, in when New Zealand All Blacks won the 2015 World Cup that they were the first to win it three times, that they should have held on to the trophy and, in perpetuity and that a new one uh, could have been commissioned and, and it could have been named after some other figure, a, a more a figure who'd actually played some role in the game's history or just be called the Rugby World Cup. And that would have followed the model that FIFA had with the, the Jules Rimet trophy when Brazil won that for the third time in 1970, they got to keep it in, in perpetuity. Well, it actually got stolen and melted down, but that's a sidetrack. But there was a new trophy. The modern World Cup was uh, commissioned. But World Rugby, or the IRB, or World Rugby as it is now, I think decided, you know, there's too much PR value in the original story and to stick with that. And despite there's been many historians 
Tony Collins and Michael Aylwin and Paul Rouse and loads of people. It's not even controversial anymore that this never happened, that it's all PR nonsense. But it's one of those situations where when the, the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Print the legend. Yeah, I prefer Jen Mackey, I must say. I like the idea of somebody who was then expelled from, from rugby as having as having started the sport. But uh, that's probably just as much mythology as, uh, as, as William Webb Ellis. So Ian, many thanks for joining no us problem. this evening to talk about uh, William Webb Ellis and the myth of rugby's origins. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Jamie Doyle on sound and to our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Duncan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>